Support for KQED Podcasts comes from SFMOMA. Calling all music lovers, don't miss Art of Noise, the must-see exhibition of the summer. Pour over 800 works, including 1960s and 70s concert posters, hi-fi listening experiences, and more. On view now. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. Take your Wi-Fi further with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity. With fast speeds and reliable coverage, home just got even sweeter with the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. During this pandemic, we've asked kids to give up a lot. For nearly two years now, not just their schooling, but their social and emotional development has been buffeted by the realities of a circulating deadly respiratory virus. The trade-off between protecting young students and vulnerable adults has been brutal, though the specifics varied among communities and income brackets. As Omicron looks to be at least nearing its peak, We're going to talk about the messy next few weeks and then what lies beyond. Given what we know now, given how tired we all are, what would count as winning when the next surge hits? That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. So while the parents and administration of many schools have often found themselves stuck trying to find the right balance of safety and instruction, students have been advocating for themselves. As a Twitter account run by some OUSD students wrote a couple days ago, students fight not because we think it's our responsibility, but because adults won't take responsibility themselves. We're joined this morning by Jimena Santana, a student leader at MetWest High School in Oakland, which has really been a hotbed of protest over poorly executed COVID safety protocols and general incompetence in the face of the virus. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Jimena. Um, I mean, thank you for having me. <laughs> no, it's great to talk with you. Can you just give me an update sort of from from the ground level What's going on today? We heard last week that there could be a sick out that was beginning today if the administration didn't sort of meet the demands of students. Is is that on today? Well, today, well, this entire week, we're planning to strike by not going to school. Aha. And what do you want the administration to do that they're not doing? Uh, so basically, uh, we had these three de- demands, but... Uh, in reality, they're not. We don't really like to call them demands since they're just what they already promised us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were asking for KN95 mask, mm-hmm. outdoor dining, and weekly testing. We did have a meeting with some of the OUSD board members, mm-hmm. and they they did show us evidence that they did order the outdoor dining, and they said KN95 mask would be schools would be receiving uh, today. But the thing is, yes, of course, that does make things safer, but the weekly testing is really the main thing we're trying to get. Mm -hmm. And what are they telling you about why they can't do weekly testing? Um, It wasn't really clear, uh, but we did like did some research and we saw that the L.A.'s district, they have Mm -hmm. weekly testing. I mean, they're like one of the most biggest ones in California and they have it. And then... 
I think one of the board members told us that we had like one tenth of the test in California, and yeah, we can't do the weekly testing. Doesn't really make sense. Yeah, Massachusetts too. Just a little more uh, ammunition free. Massachusetts put together a whole plan that our school district could have copied from uh, several months ago. So how many students are in your position, uh, you know, organizing? How many students are upset about this? And how many students are just like, listen, I just want to go to school? Um, what do you mean, like, student organizers? No, I mean, like, you know, if you just went to MetWest, like, today, and we went around mm-hmm. the halls and we said, like, hey, how do you feel about uh, what's happening in the schools I imagine not every kid is as concerned as you are about COVID protocols, or, or maybe it is that way. Maybe among young people right now, there's a, there's a huge movement to just say, hey, listen, we need these things. Like, how much support do you think you have among the students? Um, uh, well, I, I must speak for my school. That was high school. We're actually a really, like, together community. We, uh, the school really advocates for us to be student leaders and if you did go to our school today, I think there's only like very few students, like maybe mm-hmm. like two in each class, probably what from what I heard from my teacher. Oh, wow. um, but I think the people who like did go, I think maybe their parents forced them. But I feel like everyone is in our is mm-hmm. on our side. Yeah. Jimena, like, just tell me what this last couple years has been like for you. I mean, the pandemic started when you were probably what, like 13 just coming mm-hmm. into your teenage years. I mean, what do you think you've lost during the pandemic? And do you think that it's made you more resilient in any ways? Um. Well, over the pandemic, you know, just seeing everyone behind a computer screen was really weird. I was like, whoa, is this the future or something? <laughs> and I think one thing I did lose was a bit of social skills. Uh, like coming back to school, I did not know how to talk to anyone. I <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that, human. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I think it did help me focus on myself a lot more. I did gain a lot more confidence. Uh, I learned to have more self-respect. Hmm. So as you've taken that into, you know, leading students, helping lead people in your school, Mm-hmm. Do you would you want to go back to remote learning? Like if you could just say like if they came to you and they said, all right, we give up. Jimena, you and the students have won. We're going to give into these uh, into whatever you want. Would you mm-hmm. want to go back to remote learning or do you just want mass outdoor dining and weekly testing? I would say um, I don't think I, we want to go fully online, I would say, because I know that does affect a lot of students' mental health, and there's a lot of problems in that area. So I think if they can't get us all these options, although what we want, we the best option would be kind of some type of like hybrid, like some mm-hmm. days online and some days in person, just so like the students don't go crazy. <laughs> and also maybe that lets you space things out in the classrooms more too, yeah, so that not as many people are packed in. Yeah. Um, if people want to follow what's happening with student organizing, both at, well, at MetWest in OUSD and more broadly, because I assume you've kind of linked up with some other mm-hmm. folks from other schools, 
What's the best way for them to do that? Because even this morning when we were trying to figure out what was going on with y'all, it was very difficult for us to figure out, like, wait, where exactly uh, <laughs> would we find uh, the on-the-ground uh, action? Uh, there's uh, Instagram and Twitter called OUSD Students and mm-hmm. also OUSD Student Strike. Okay. Cool. That's great. Anything else you want to tell uh, folks out there who are listening to the show and, and, you know, who've been having a debate about what should be done uh, for mm-hmm. and with students. Um, now you got a chance to tell people directly what you think. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I would like to tell the people who think we're just students who are just trying to be lazy and not go to school. That's not it. We're just really trying to protect ourselves and make sure school's safe. I mean, that's a, I think that's a right that every student should have, that they feel safe at school. Um, and we won't stop until we get what we need. Jimena Santana, student leader at MetWest High School in Oakland. Thanks so much for joining us. That was enlightening. That was great. <laughs> Thank you. It was no problem. Yeah. Uh, we are going to let her get back to the strike, and we're going to bring on Lee Atkinson McAvoy, clinical professor of pediatrics at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in san francisco welcome to the show dr atkinson mcavoy thanks for having me so parent you know kids are obviously in a tough spot as we heard from jimena parents are also in a tough spot just trying to calibrate their risk meters i think at this stage of the pandemic so what's your best advice for parents on how they should be thinking about the the risk to their own children and also to their communities more broadly? That's a a great question. And, you know, I'm going to disclose I'm a parent. I'm a parent of three children who actually attend a high school in Oakland Unified School District. So it was very interesting uh, for me to listen to uh, Jimena's um, summary of sort of what's going on, because I've heard about it from their lens. Um, I think As parents, we want the best for our kids. We'd like them to go back to a sense of normalcy, which includes education, it includes social activities, and it includes extracurricular. Mm -hmm. And what we know now, we have vaccines available for those five and older. Um, There's more information coming out specifically about the right sort of masks we should wear. Um, I think a point still uh, that is unclear for parents is what happens when your child is in those spaces when you're not there. So is everybody wearing a mask? Does everyone have access to an N95 like mask in those settings? Um, So, you know, parents are worried. They worry about their children. They worry about their own health. And then if they're elders who are part of their family, another group to worry about. For family units of all types out there, how are you handling the Omicron surge? Parents, grandparents, elders, multi-generational households, regular old nuclear families. What are you concerned about? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Chosen families, too. Get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. You can email your questions or your comments to forum at kqed.org. So, Quickly, you know, I was looking at the numbers, some good news. You know, the California Department of Public Health threshold metric is like staffed beds in hospitals. You know, getting below 10 percent of those available is what they consider kind of like a red line metric. And through this surge, 
no region has really gotten close to touching those numbers, especially not here in the Bay Area. Has the same been true of pediatric hospitals? Are they also at least able to function through this? Um, So pediatric hospitals have been able to function through this as we've seen just greater numbers of children getting sick. There is um, sort of a a steady state or a normal proportion of those who end up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I think for many health systems, the biggest issue was having sufficient staff. So we can count beds in terms of physical space, but we also count in terms of having enough nurses to take Mm -hmm. care of um, those patients. And so a lot of hospitals um, got quite close in terms of worrying about being able to accommodate all of the patients who needed to come into hospitals. Mm -hmm. Um, And things are looking a little bit better as we sort of, seems like we've, we've peaked um, a little bit, uh, and we're having some of the folks who got sick the first week in January be able to safely come back to work. Yeah, it definitely seemed like folks in healthcare got hit hard and early, um, and maybe now things are improving a little bit. We're talking about how students, parents, schools, hospitals are responding to the Omicron surge with Dr. Lee Atkinson McAvoy, clinical professor of pediatrics at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. And we do want to hear from you. How are you handling the Omicron surge? What are you concerned about? Do you still have questions about how this variant is playing out in the United States and here in the Bay Area? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. Or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after a short break. At Star One Credit Union, they're first because they put you first. Ranked number one in the nation for direct financial benefit to their members, nine years and counting. Star One invests in your best interest with the latest banking technology, an authentic human experience, and effortlessly simple, everyday banking solutions that put you first. They also believe in giving back, donating to over 70 Bay Area organizations annually. Become a member at StarOne.org or drop by any of their Bay Area locations. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. You see the world as you experience it, but you can only experience so much firsthand. That's where the BBC comes in. Think of them as providers of information and inspiration, entertainment and engagement, and stories that connect us beyond borders. They don't care if they tell a story first, so long as they're the first to tell it right. Because the best stories don't tell you what to think. They're made to make you think. Get the world's stories on the new BBC.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how students, parents, and schools are responding to the Omicron surge with Dr. Lee Atkinson McAvoy, clinical professor of pediatrics, UCF, UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. Dr. Atkinson McAvoy, you know, thinking back to 2020, I think a lot of people were paying really intense and close attention to what was happening with coronavirus at that time, back when we called it COVID-19. 
And they've kind of carried over that knowledge to today. So even on masks, I mean, people just began to switch in masks to KN95s and N95s after years of cloth masks. So what else do you think could be updated in a similar way? Like what knowledge about this virus and the way that it works and public health measures do you think we need to revise from that early pandemic period? Um, I think uh, one of the important things is being aware of of symptoms. And I think I, we still find people who say, I think it was just my allergies and a reluctance to test. Mm. Um, I know the federal government has promised um, that we'll all get free tests and ensuring that insurance companies will cover it. But when I go to my local pharmacy, they're not available, like rapid tests are not available. So it is one, we should test ourselves sooner. Um, the slightest, you know, sniffle, cough, um, there's really no harm to testing other than the fact that the tests are not available. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those really frustrating things that it feels like there was a possibility of having an entirely different kind of response that was built around um, rapid tests and moving infectious people out of the population as quickly as possible. But we didn't take that fork in the road. Um, we we went for a different set of measures, yeah? We did. And even when we think about things like uh, price points of, of testing, you know, we've, we've seen a reflection of um, disparities that exist in our healthcare system, and they are perpetuated by, can you afford a 20 to $30 mm-hmm. rapid test, even if available, um, so that you would know, so you could make different decisions to keep your loved ones and your coworkers and your um fellow citizens in your community safe. Well, and you know, one of the <laughs> one of the really frustrating things for those who remember was the Trump administration actually promised five dollar uh tests in a quite big splashy announcement with the makers uh of the Binax Now test Abbott. Um and of course in stores they have never shown up as being five dollars. Let's bring in uh Heather from Livermore, first caller. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. I hope you two are having a nice, healthy morning so far. (laughs) So far. (laughs) Um, So I am a mother of a fully vaccinated seven-year-old. She's in second grade, and I'm also a mom to a 19-month-old. And when I listen to you asking questions about our lifestyle, I feel like we haven't really changed anything since the pandemic began, even though we're vaccinated, because we are so concerned about the effects of Omicron. And we know people that are through extended friends that have um, unfortunately suffered some of the long-term effects. And I guess my main question, um, as I'm hearing, you know, cases and things arriving in the hospitals, my, my biggest concern is our, our little one, and that is that she can't get vaccinated, and we don't know how to um, best protect her other than the fact that all of us in our extended family are triple vaxxed at this point, both mm-hmm. the fully vaccinated and boosters. And so my question um, is just really sort of maybe some uh, ideas to, number one, help relax uh our family to feel like we're okay um and also how to continue protecting our children yeah thanks for that heather 
That's a that's a great question, Heather. Um, uh, I am fortunate enough that all three of my children are older, so they're um, vaccinated and boosted. But I do have friends who have children who are not yet old enough to get vaccination, and it it weighs on them tremendously, and it has really sort of curtailed their lives, their activities, um, their ability to see extended family. So one of the things that you've already done is making sure that everybody who could be vaccinated in your household is vaccinated. Um, again, uh, thinking about social circles, everybody who's eligible being vaccinated. Um, wearing masks um, can be helpful. I know your 19 month old is not old enough to wear a mask, but potentially even being in set more settings with people wearing masks in indoor settings. Um, I have found as a pediatrician, very little uh, complaint from children about wearing masks. There are some kids for whom it is uh, uncomfortable, but they've adapted to wearing masks a lot better and wear them. Uh, don't take them off as soon as they get in the car, you know, they keep them on. So being around more masked people can help. And then testing if if you want to have a gathering um, of individuals, a play date, um, if anybody has any symptoms to get a test early or wait till those symptoms sort of improve before getting together are ways to allow you to continue to socialize. So it's testing, masking in people who are appropriate and vaccination. Yeah. You know, Heather, the other thing that has uh, provided me with some anxiety calming and not everyone is calmed by statistics in the way that I am, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm here on the California Department of Public Health website, and I'm looking at cases and deaths associated with COVID-19 by age group in California. And though there have been, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases uh, in children under five, um, there have been 15 deaths, uh, a very, very uh, small number. And though there have obviously been hospitalizations, too, um, it, the chance of hospitalization is also, like, very small. So not everyone is comforted by that. Your mileage may vary, but I have a, a two-year-old very close to me, um, and that has made me, you know, it just it makes me feel better, like remembering that your plane's not going to crash even if there's turbulence. You know, that it's the same kind of comfort as far as I'm concerned. Um, thanks so much uh, for that, Heather. Let's go to uh, Molly in San Francisco. Hi, can you hear me? Okay. Yes, we can. Uh, um, can you hear me? Okay. Yes, go ahead, Molly. Um, so I'm a family of four, and early on for Omicron, just around the 17th of December, myself and my 14-year-old daughter got it. I was triple vax. She wasn't eligible yet for the booster. Um, and so we had to obviously protect my husband and my older daughter, who were triple vaxxed, and my mother-in-law, who's 93. And we made a decision as a family, and I think that I have more of a comment, um, that may be controversial or not, but we made a decision as a family, you know, we were going to follow the recommendations from the scientists and wear our N95s. And we were still in the period when it was recommended 10 days quarantine, stay in your room, don't leave your room, use your own bathroom. And we were exhausted by that already because we had followed those protocols, even though we'd never gotten, you know, uh, we'd never, we hadn't gotten COVID yet. And so we decided um, that as a family of four, we weren't going to endanger anyone else, but we were going to wear our N95s. We were going to wash our hands. 
Um, and we were going to keep our distance from one another, and we had enough space in our home where we were able to do that and open the windows in the pouring rain and freezing cold, if you remember correctly. Um, And I think the N95 made a huge difference. Neither my daughter nor my husband ever contracted it. We were lucky that our schools provided us with tests. We had enough tests to, for my husband to be able to test every day before he went to see his 94-year-old mother. And, um, you know, it, it made a real difference for us. Obviously, if you don't have access to tests, that can cause a lot of stress and you don't want to jeopardize people. Um, but we were, you know, very, very fortunate in that we didn't, neither my daughter nor my husband, uh, my other older daughter, got it. And I think I attribute that to open windows and n ninety five. Hey, thanks so much for sharing that experience, Molly. Um, I also, when I got COVID, uh, I got out of our house right away, and no one else in my family got it too. I mean, it's a it's a fascinating um, thing that's actually kind of difficult, Doctor Atkinson McAvoy, sometimes to explain. You know, my daughter was like kissing my face, you know, at mere hours before I tested positive, um, and and yet did not get uh, what I assume was Delta back at the time. Yeah. Um... You know, so we we know it's infectious and um, especially for Omicron, we know Omicron is more infectious than some of the other variants, but um, it's harder to sort of quantify. It is definitely not the most infectious virus. Um, So measles, for example, is oftentimes described as one of the super infectious viruses that you can be in a large concert hall, one person has measles and somebody across the building could also get it as well. It is not quite as infectious as that. So that explains why sometimes even with close contact, it's just how much virus were you shedding at the time Mm -hmm. that your um, daughter was kissing you. And Molly described sort of the perfect thing, which is that we know N95 masks are effective. That's why we use them in the healthcare system. We use um, them to protect healthcare workers from COVID positive patients and to protect patients in case a healthcare worker is shedding virus but does not yet know that they are sick. Um, so if you're able to get N95 masks and wear them, they really, they really help. Yeah. We also want to say uh, producer Caroline alerted us that covidtests.gov, uh, this is the government test ordering site, is now live. So you can order test um that's just covidtest.gov that's that's the whole thing um dr dr atkinson mcboy when i was looking at the vax rates for vaccination rates for kids it seemed like they're pretty low do you happen to know what they are and and is it what you expect did you expect that vaccination rates for children would be quite low yeah i think um one of i, I have um the U.S. data, so for, you know, U.S. in total, uh, 5 to 11-year-olds, 18.4% are fully vaccinated. Um, and remember, the vaccines came out, uh, the Pfizer vaccine was approved right before Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and they're given three weeks apart. So there has been enough time um, at least to have some fully vaccinated people. And then 12 to 17, it's 54.5%. And I think one of... Um, one of the issues around the fact that children don't get quite as sick as adults do, and you quoted the data for California that there's very few deaths, is actually um, the number of deaths nationally is is small. Um, 
there's a perception by some parents that uh, the fear of what the vaccine might cause is more than uh, the fear of having COVID and there being a, a death. Um, but what we know from early data from the vaccine data in terms of deaths, the, the rate of deaths in children is much lower from the vaccine than it would be from actually getting COVID. So even if that number is low, um, the vaccines work. They actually, um, and their side effects are really less. Uh, another question from listener Brittany. She writes, we're working professionals in the hospitality sector. Our seven-year-old is in a public school. My grandma lives with us. It's been a balancing act, weighing the risk. We're all vaccinated, but it's still tricky. Is there any indication of boosters for children? Our latest frustration has been the flip-flop on acceptable COVID tests. We're now told at-home tests are okay, yet many school administrators did not seem to know this when we went back after the holiday break. It caused a ton of confusion. Any advice for her? Yeah, you know, I think one of the most interesting things about this pandemic has been this concept of um, building a boat in a storm as you go and sort of not necessarily knowing um, uh, whether the boat will hold always. And that's true for uh, the tests that initially, when you think about how antigen tests are designed and how they work, there are some errors that can happen with it, most notably false negative. Um, but because of you know difficulty with getting PCR testing and the increased use of um, the antigen test, which is the home test, we actually know that um, the tests perform a little bit better than we thought. And that explains the sort of, it's less of flip-flopping and more as we get more information and we study it amongst millions and millions of tests, we get a better sense of how accurate that test might be. Yeah, it also seemed to me that there was a, a growing recognition among many leaders of the COVID response that while PCR tests might give a, the, the most medically important diagnosis, like that it was a good diagnostic tool, that actually, particularly in the surge, our test capacity just simply could not keep up. And, you know, a PCR test in five days is a lot less valuable than an antigen test in 15 minutes. I mean, just like from a public health perspective, I mean, you as someone who might, you know, get COVID going through the medical system might want a PCR test so that if you do have long COVID symptoms or whatever, you have definitive evidence that uh, for your insurer or whoever else you're going to have to deal with. But from a public health perspective, we just want that person to not be infecting other people. And I think the, the value of the antigen test, even with slightly less uh, accurate results, I just think became cle clear and clear, as you're noting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was a recent study that looked at the antigen test and the false positivity rate that is oftentimes quoted. And for certain brands, it's lower um, than thought. So the idea that you can rely on those tests, that if it's positive, then you really have it, is is more sort of what we're leaning into to allow people to stay home, to quarantine from the rest of the world as much as possible, um, their world, yeah. to keep others safe. 
Yeah, we've got a uh, another listener question. Uh, Roger asks, are more people dying from Delta or Omicron? It seems to me that the media is talking more about cases and ignoring death just on a national level. Uh, we're approaching a uh, seven-day average of almost 2,000 deaths a day right now, which is off from the um, the peak last winter, but still extremely high. What, what else would you say about that, Dr.? Um, Yeah, so we know that um, Delta tended to cause um, more severe disease and sort of more death or more hospitalization than Omicron um, has when you look at a rate-based approach. But because more people are getting Omicron, um, the death rate with Omicron isn't zero. Mm -hmm. And so we will see a lot of death because we're just seeing, this has been our largest spike, we're just seeing a lot of um, COVID disease out there. Yep. And you can, you know, uh, I think people forget, too, that the United States and even California and even the Bay Area are not fully vaccinated. We're in a place where the vaccination rates on a national level, fully vaccinated, are uh, are just over 60 percent, set for all ages, 72 percent for 12 and up. And thankfully, uh, 88% for 65 and up, although we noted that uh, for for kids, it's much lower. Um, is there anything else that you would want to say about the sort of lethality of, of Omicron? Um, again, the other part that we, we don't pay attention to are people who exist with chronic conditions that mm-hmm. make them fragile at baseline, that getting a viral infection um, is harmful. And there's lots of things that we do from a public health perspective to protect those uh, people. And that's why vaccination is important, that even if disease is likely to be milder for you, you get vaccinated. So the elderly person who lives alone, who has to go to the grocery store, who might have some COPD, doesn't get exposed. We're talking about this stage in the pandemic, about halfway through the Omicron surge with Dr. Lee Atkinson, McAvoy Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. At Star One Credit Union, they're first because they put you first. Ranked number one in the nation for direct financial benefit to their members, nine years and counting. Star One invests in your best interest with the latest banking technology, an authentic human experience, and effortlessly simple, everyday banking solutions that put you first. They also believe in giving back, donating to over 70 Bay Area organizations annually. Become a member at StarOne.org or drop by any of their Bay Area locations. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. You see the world as you experience it, but you can only experience so much firsthand. That's where the BBC comes in. Think of them as providers of information and inspiration, entertainment and engagement, and stories that connect us beyond borders. They don't care if they tell a story first, so long as they're the first to tell it right. Because the best stories don't tell you what to think. They're made to make you think. Get the world's stories on the new BBC.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the stage of the pandemic we're in, in the midst of the Omicron surge, but perhaps getting to its conclusion. 
Uh, we're joined by Dr. Lee Atkinson McAvoy, clinical professor of pediatrics at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. And we're now also joined by Dr. Celine Gounder, an internist and infectious diseases specialist and epidemiologist. She's the host and producer of the podcast American Diagnosis, as well as Epidemic, which focus on the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Gounder. Great to be here. Yeah, as always, nice to talk with you. Um, so we're probably roughly halfway through the Omicron surge. Not going to say we are definitively have peaked. Maybe we haven't, but we're, we're probably getting kind of close. Relative to when the news started to come from South African scientists that this new variant was circulating around the world, what have we learned that's maybe surprising relative to what uh, we thought might happen back, you know, in November, October? So, Alexis, I think the first point I want to make is, you know, you mentioned we're peaking, um, and that is true in certain parts of the country, like New York City and some of the denser uh, northeastern cities, for example. But I think it's really important for people to understand peak. Peaking means at the height. height. It, right. it does not mean we're at a trough, at a low. And what we've also seen with other peaks before is you actually have uh, more than half of cases that occur after the peak during yeah. one of these surges. So I, I think that, you know, people need to understand that. But what have we learned? Um, you know, I think we have learned that Omicron does seem to uh, favor the upper airway over the lower airway, which is why it does appear to cause relatively less severe disease um, compared to, say, Delta. So when we talk about the lower airway, we're talking about the lungs, for example. We're talking about other internal organs as well. And so Omicron is infecting more of the nose, the throat. Um, and so your symptoms uh, may be more akin to a bad common cold. But that said, because some proportion of people will still have a bad case, and because Omicron is spreading like wildfire, we're seeing higher cases than ever before, you can still see a significant proportion of people end up in the hospital. Basically, a small percentage times a big number is still a very big number. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, especially the number of cases is tremendous, like official cases. But to get an official case designation, you need to have PCR test. And we do know that that testing capacity, both like at a national level, but also, you know, at, at smaller scales, it's incredibly limited. So it's almost like when you really see one of these surges in an area, you never really get to see the real peak because as it takes off, we just can't test all the people who actually have who have COVID. You know, I guess one of my questions around what has happened to Omicron to date is we were very worried that the hospitals would be under severe pressure, right? I mean, we knew that like vaccinated people – uh, there was tremendous protection from the vaccines, which seems like a real uh, gift, even though this this um, variant is quite different from previous ones. But as it's turned out, at least in places with high vaccination rates, like here in the Bay Area, the hospitals have held up. Is that a sign that we're sort of getting better at dealing with these surges that that we are maybe we're not winning, but we're not losing as badly? I think we've learned how to adapt. So I just wrapped up um, a, a stint on service at Bellevue Hospital. And you know, part of the way we plan for these surges is we put a pause on elective procedures. And I think people sometimes don't understand when we talk about elective procedures, 
that basically means, I don't know, you didn't have a gunshot wound to the abdomen or, you know, something like that where you have to be taken instantly to the OR. But say you're a woman who has breast cancer, who needs a mastectomy, those are also the kinds of surgeries that we're putting on pause right now. Um, and so a lot of what we're doing is sort of using surgical services uh, to absorb that overflow of medical patients. So a, a patient with heart failure goes to cardiothoracic surgery, where instead of doing open heart surgery, they're managing heart failure, which normally would be on the medicine service. And that's a lot of how we've been um, contending with that overflow. I, I don't think that's a sustainable long-term plan, though. If we continue to have surges to keep putting a pause on surgical services every time, you know, that people are going to um, really suffer as a consequence. Yeah. Dr. Gander, before we get back to uh, some listener questions, I just... I guess I wanted you, you've been following this pandemic extremely closely from the very beginning. I've been hearing from you and talking to you for years now about how things have gone. And I guess I want to ask when or if you think there'll be a time in this calendar year when we sort of say, okay, we're still going to take reasonable protective measures. You know, you're in a really crowded space. You might still wear a mask. You know, if there's a surge, you might still do this. Do you think there's going to come a moment where we say, okay, we're, we're beginning to treat this like other respiratory illnesses? You know, so much of this depends on what happens with variants. Um, if Omicron uh, were to be the last major variant of this calendar year, which I would predict it is not, uh, but if it were, then I think, yes, you would be able to um, arrive at some sort of closer to normalcy and many parts of the country, especially where you do have higher vaccination rates. But part of the reason Omicron really threw a wrench in our recovery is because it is a, an immune evading variant. So uh, immune evading with respect to both our vaccines as well as prior infection. And it's really hard for us to predict even now when, um, how, where the next variant might emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every time I hear people talking about the quote-unquote immunity wall that was built up by Omicron, I'm like, but wait a second, <laughs> didn't we just experience that, uh, in fact, a variant could come along? And in fact, that there's selective pressure on the virus to 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 select for that kind of immune evasion. So I, I it worries me as well. Um, let's get to a couple of questions. We've got some uh, questions about students coming in. This is a really interesting one. Um, Angie writes, I'm an administrator at a school in Richmond, and I can't tell you how frustrating it is to witness the range of responses and reactions. We offer free weekly testing, and we are begging students to sign up. The average turnout for students getting tested is only one-third of the student population, even though it's free. Students will be sent home because they have symptoms and then will return the next day, despite being told they can't return because they have to quarantine or, I suppose, uh, isolate. Then halfway through the day, they're asking to go home again. The quarantine explanation for exposure is uh, the quarantine explanation for exposure. Not something's wrong there. We're doing the best we can and have all the tools at our disposal, but we are tired. Uh, Dr. Lee Atkinson McAvoy, uh, clinical professor of pediatrics at UCSF. Um, when you hear a story like that where a school has brought in the, the very things that we heard, you know, 
uh, Jimena earlier, wanting at OUSD and wanting at MetWest High School. Um, you see how difficult it is for a community to protect itself because it requires not individuals doing the right thing, but an entire school, right? Yeah, um, uh, she makes a great point. A lot of schools have some form of testing strategy and a testing strategy. OUSD has one. They send out an, a message to parents every Sunday. I get it. As, as part of it, it tells me where I can go for the tests. I think one of the things is, one, um, some school districts don't have it at every school, only at certain schools. Mm-hmm. Two, there's a lot of stigma still around um, having COVID. A little bit, people feel a little embarrassed, a little ashamed. And so for a student to sort of um, on his or her own, leave a classroom and go somewhere for a test or stay home because I have COVID, that's part of it. And I think what Jimena and the students at OUSD want is everybody gets tested. It's testing day and all the ninth graders do it on mm-hmm. Thursday and the 10th graders on Friday or some variation like that where you still capture um, who might be positive, but there's less stigma around needing to test yeah. and less yeah. travel to go to a certain spot to get the test done. Yeah. So I've got two quite difficult reader comments and I'm uh, Dr. Gounder. I'm going to come to you uh, with the first one. Margie writes, I'm a single mother who shares custody part-time. My co-parent is not vaccinated yet still has a right to see my son who's fully vaccinated. I'm constantly worried that he will be exposed there. I have to navigate countering misinformation while also hunting for rapid at-home tests so we can test frequently between visits with his father. This is all so much to navigate for everyone. If my son gets COVID at his dad's house, then he won't be able to go to school and I won't be able to work, which means I'll lose income. My concerns are both about our health as well as our financial security. It's one of these things where you realize COVID just puts pressure on the fracture points in everything at every level, family level, societal level. And Dr. Gender, I've heard this from a lot of people personally uh, about this kind of situation. Is there anything that can really be done or that would be helpful for Margie? Well, I think from a medical perspective, if her son is fully vaccinated, uh, if he's boosted, his risk of having a serious infection from COVID, from SARS-CoV-2 is minimal. Uh, We're seeing that people who have been vaccinated are something like 10 to 15 times less likely to end up in the hospital right now during Omicron than unvaccinated people. Um, They're highly unlikely um, to develop um, severe COVID or to die from COVID. So I think from a medical perspective, the risk is very low. I think what is difficult here is the question of schooling, of who's going to care for her son, if he can't attend school, if he has to quarantine. you know, and then if her husband is the one who's putting him at risk and, and is the one who's the potential source of infection, might he be willing to stay at home with the son mm-hmm. if he needs to quarantine? Um, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's outside of the purview of, uh, of my yeah. medical practice, but, you know, it's, it's compromise, I guess. Yeah, well, and we've seen so much of the gendered labor around children knocking so many women out of the workforce, those expectations. It's been very, very tough. We've done whole whole shows on that topic. Um, 
Dr. Uh, Atkinson McAvoy, come to you with this one. And again, these these questions are on the the borderline of social and medical, you know, and I know they're difficult to answer, but I really, I think it's worth it for listeners and for us to to hear these experiences. So here's another one. We have an 11-year-old and a 6-year-old who are fully vaccinated. Our 11-year-old in particular had a very hard time socially and emotionally during remote learning. Returning to school and being vaccinated has been wonderful. Q Omicron. Despite all logical discussions, the privilege of access to KF94 masks, regular testing, this child is experiencing deep anxiety again. They won't sit with friends at lunch anymore because those friends remove their masks to eat. They're avoiding most situations with friends out of fear. The anxiety and worry from these years has left a deep and lasting impact in some kids. Uh, thanks for that question. Um, you are correct. It, uh, it borders on the social, but that's what I'm seeing in my practice. Mm-hmm. Um, what we know, the collateral damage um, from the pandemic uh, is has been the spike in anxiety and depression and other mental health and behavioral concerns in children. There was already a trend of us recognizing this was increasing, and we've just seen a significant increase throughout the pandemic. Um, It doesn't help uh, this parent's concern, but this is definitely normal. Um, And it is anxiety and it is anxiety with an overreaction to fear around the pandemic. Um, And while they are correct that presenting uh, control and evidence can be helpful, that's the type of child where I would strongly encourage them to try and find a therapist or someone mm-hmm. um, this child can speak to and slowly um, have an opportunity to come to an understanding and develop some tools to help with the anxiety that they're experiencing. Yeah. Dr. Gander, want to uh, zoom back out a little bit here. Um, Lisa writes, I'm grateful for all Biden has done, but I'm shocked and disappointed that the CDC and president didn't take action sooner to make at-home tests readily available. Likewise, it's infuriating that the U.S. hasn't done more to vaccinate the world, which I I would add might be good for stopping future variants to have less virus circulating around the world. Um, what do you think, Dr. Gounder? I mean, I, I know you've been involved at that level of discussions Do you think the Biden administration has done the best it could even? The administration did amazing the first six months in terms of um, rolling out vaccines, getting people vaccinated. And I think 100% of their energy and focus was really on vaccination uh, in the early months of uh, 2021. And I think, unfortunately, um, the need to emphasize other tools was something of an afterthought. And should have been something that um, that they focused on more last summer when you had the emergence of the Delta variant and understanding that vaccines, while our number one, number two, number three most important tools in the toolbox are not the only tool, particularly given they don't prevent all infection, they don't prevent all transmission, and you still have about a third of the country that remains unvaccinated. So you really do need to be layering other tools. And I think it's only now in the midst of our, what is our sixth surge of COVID across the country and in our Omicron surge, that there's been this understanding that we really do need to invest more in making testing widely available. 
Um, as to the question of vaccination, you know, when we had the discussion about boosters that really started to emerge over the summer, people said, well, it's not a zero sum game. Um, we can do both. And the reality is it's becoming increasingly clear that there is a trade-off um, when you're talking about hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine that are now going towards boosters, you have more people boosted in the United States than you have gotten a single dose of vaccine into in many countries still. Um, mm -hmm. And there is a trade-off there, you know, is the trade-off that you want to prevent all infections for a sh short period of time, to be clear, for a couple months uh, with a booster, or do you want to reduce the risk of variants emerging by really quashing uh, infections and transmission through first and second doses. And you know, we made a choice um, and now have left, unfortunately, a lot of the world behind. Yeah. A uh, quick question. Last one here for you, Dr. Atkinson McAvoy. Uh, Holly writes, please have the doctor explain how many times people can reuse N95 and similar masks. My understanding is that in a non-medical setting, we can wear masks at least five times. Uh, what do you think? Uh, yeah, um, I, you know, the sort of integrity of the N95 mask and sort of how much use and abuse it's sustained or if it got wet on the outside, um, you should probably not reuse it. But around um, five times, if it still fits you snugly, is a reasonable reuse rate. Thank you so much for that. And also, there was a question of storing them in a paper bag. Is that the right way to do it? Um, so what you want to do if you're protecting yourself is keep the inside part protected. So just folding it in half. And if you put it in a paper bag or clip it together or somehow so it doesn't open up is the best thing to do. Thank you so much. We have been talking about this stage of the pandemic we're hoping we're halfway through this Omicron surge. We've been joined by Dr. Lee Atkinson McAvoy, clinical professor of pediatrics at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in San Francisco. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've also been joined by Dr. Celine Gounder, an internist and infectious diseases specialist and epidemiologist, host and producer of the podcast American Diagnosis and Epidemic. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gounder. Thanks, Alexis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. At Star One Credit Union, everything they do is in your best interests. They want to make banking easy and help your money grow. So Star One invests in technology to provide you with the best digital banking experience. Need a mortgage, auto, or solar loan? Their rates are stellar. At Star One, they're all about building lasting relationships by providing financial products and services that put you first. Become a member at StarOne.org or drop by any of their Bay Area locations. Star One Credit Union in your best interest. You see the world as you experience it, but you can only experience so much firsthand. That's where the BBC comes in. Think of them as providers of information and inspiration, entertainment and engagement, and stories that connect us beyond borders. They don't care if they tell a story first, so long as they're the first to tell it right. Because the best stories don't tell you what to think. They're made to make you think.
Get the world's stories on the new BBC.com. Hey, KQED listeners. I'm right now as podcast host, Pendarvis Harshaw, dropping a line to invite you to a summer evening of live contemporary jazz at the KQED headquarters in San Francisco, Thursday, June 20th at 7 p.m. We've got a stacked lineup of dope musicians, including vocalist Jamie Z, saxophonist Lydia Rodriguez, and harpist Destiny Muhammad. And Newsflash is the closing event for our podcast. We've had a great run, so help us celebrate the end of this chapter. Get tickets to Liner Notes Live at kqed.org events.